Good morning. Welcome to Sovereign Grace. We are in 2 Timothy chapter 1 today, so we continue our series. We are a people under the Word of God, so we want you to follow along with us in the Word of God. I do want to make it clear that we're in a series of gospel texts really focused on the incarnation or what we call the first advent of Christ, the first coming of Christ, really looking forward to the second coming of Christ. And this is often neglected by Christians in our day. I don't know if you know this, but in the early church, I was reminded of this by a message by Sinclair Ferguson recently, and the early church, if believers weren't thinking about the second coming of Christ daily, it was often considered maybe the number one reason for apostasy, the reason we tend to walk away because we're not frequently thinking of his return, our blessed hope. And so while we go through the Christmas season and consider these texts for Advent of his first coming, I hope that you're also turned to our blessed hope in his second coming. So look with me at 2 Timothy chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 6 through 12 for context. I really won't hit much on 6 and 7. But we consider this second letter that Paul wrote to Timothy. If you remember, Paul had sent Timothy to Ephesus to clean up the doctrinal mess, the moral mess that had happened there, to reappoint some elders. Some of them had become false teachers, kind of rebuild the church. And so we read this letter from Paul to Timothy, the second letter to him. We're going to start in verse 6, 2 Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 6. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death, and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. For which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. This is the word of the Lord. Let's go to him in prayer, asking his help to understand it. Father, we do ask that your spirit would give us understanding of your word. We know that Christ, the head of the church, speaks to his people as we are gathered through the word and by the spirit. And we pray that he would. Even as he does so through these lowly ministers of the word, we pray that the message would go forth clearly, without error, and that your spirit would attend to that so that our hearts and minds would be transformed. That we would not be conformed to the power of this world, but we would be transformed by the renewing of our minds as your son speaks through his word by his spirit to us. Help us to understand this gospel word, this encouragement from Paul to Timothy to not be ashamed 
of the gospel message nor of the minister of that message. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in the pastoral epistles, what we call this section of the New Testament, the pastoral epistles, so 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, Paul is encouraging and instructing younger ministers, namely Timothy and Titus, as to their calling and ordination as ministers of the word. You've been set apart by the council of elders as they laid hands upon you, and you need to go and minister to the church in these particular ways. And so Paul lays it out for these young ministers. Paul knows that these young ministers will be opposed by the world. They'll be opposed by false teachers within the church, and they'll be opposed by other church members. He knows that. He knows this opposition that they're going to face ultimately springs from the world. And when I say the world, I don't mean the planet Earth. You understand that? The world meaning this world's system, what it values and loves, its ideologies. That the minister of the gospel will be opposed by the world. The flesh, we say the flesh, we don't mean your physical body. We mean that principle of sin within us. And the devil. When we say that, we mean our ancient enemy, the one who lied to Adam and Eve in the garden, the father of lies. That gospel ministers will be ridiculed, abandoned, and imprisoned for their gospel preaching. It's what he's warning Timothy and Titus about and encouraging them in the face of. Suffering, in other words, is the inevitable and constant, listen, please hear this, constant companion on the path that will be walked by ministers of the word. Now we talk about all believers suffering, that's true. But there is a particular sense in which the Bible is constantly telling ministers of the word, those set apart to this life, that suffering will be your constant companion. It's inevitable for you. Look at 2 Timothy 1.8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. Paul has been imprisoned. This is the end of his life. Share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. In other words, Timothy, I'm suffering for the gospel. You share in that suffering with me. Look at verse 11 and 12 of the same chapter. For which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher. Now, I'm a preacher and a teacher. I am not an apostle. We're clear about that. There aren't any more of those. If somebody tells you they are, then run away. So, a preacher, an apostle, and teacher, look what he says, which is why I suffer as I do. I suffer as I do because of my ministry in the Word. Look at verse 15. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phagellus and Hermogenes. In other words, he was abandoned by friends. All who are in Asia abandon him. That's a kind of suffering. Look at chapter 2 and verse 3. He's telling Timothy, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. See, you're a soldier of Christ Jesus. When you're a minister of the gospel, you are set apart by your general to go to war on his behalf. You don't pick your battlefield. You go where he sends you. You don't pick the outcome. You do what he tells you. And you will suffer. You will suffer. There aren't soldiers who go to war who don't suffer. You understand that? Share in suffering as a good soldier of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now go down to chapter 2, verse 8. 
Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, no notice, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. I'll look at that more next week. Go to chapter 3 and verse 10. Speaking to Timothy, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. Now notice, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Now look at chapter 4 and verse 5 after Paul tells Timothy to preach the word in season and out of season. Look at verse 5 of chapter 4. As for you, he's speaking to Timothy here, the minister of the word. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Now look down at chapter 4 and verse 9. Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. In other words, one of the fellow ministers loves this world. He deserted him. Now keep going. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for the ministry. Now go down to verse 14. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. See, herein is the well-worn path of the gospel minister. It is a path of suffering for faithfully preaching the word. The world, the flesh, and the devil are opposed to clear gospel preaching. They're opposed to it. They're opposed to the public reading and exposition of the scriptures. The word is a double-edged sword, cutting some men to the heart so that they repent and find salvation, cutting other men down in judgment for their sin and rebellion. And thus the opposition to the word is strong. Paul is suffering for the gospel. He's in prison. He tells us in 2 Timothy 4, really that the end of his life has come, that his life has been poured out as a drink offering, that he's about to be put to death. And he is commanding Timothy to not be ashamed of the message or the minister, but rather to join in suffering with him. As Paul does that, he launches into what William Hendrickson called a beautiful digression. This beautiful digression is one of these glorious gospel-in-a-nutshell passages that we're preaching in the pastoral epistles. So we're going to see this beautiful digression. We'll spend most of the time there today as we see the gospel in a nutshell. But I want to put it in the context of what's happening. This beautiful digression is given just at the right moment for what encourages a gospel minister to be unashamed and to keep suffering. What causes a man not to veer from the path of suffering for the sake of the gospel? You know, I've thought about that a lot as I've traveled the world. You all know that I've been traveling the world not because I'm a jet setter, but because I'm making a series with the team, making a series of historical biographies 
on the lives of presently six missionaries. There are others planned for future years, not at the pace we're going now, but one every couple years is about all I want to endure again. Six in one year is too many. But we're out doing that, and as we're traveling the world speaking about these missionaries who went to the hardest places on earth, we recognize the terrible suffering they faced, and I'm constantly thinking about, Lord, would I have endured this? I was just in Belgium, and we're actually standing outside the castle where William Tyndale was imprisoned. You remember William Tyndale is the man who translates the Bible into English for the first time. He's imprisoned in this castle for some time, and then he's taken out to be burned at the stake. He's strangled as a kind of act of mercy just before they set him on fire. Why? Because he translated the Bible into English and he wouldn't stop doing it. I don't know if you guys know this, but 2024 marks the 500th anniversary from when he started the first translation into English. Next year. He started it. He completes it in 1525. And then he ships it to England in 1526. You all are able to sit here and listen to the Bible in your language and take a Bible home and read it in your language because this man faced imprisonment and was burned at the stake. And I was standing there thinking to myself, how does a man endure that? I was also in Scotland, so we were in Belgium, and then we flew over to Scotland because we were filming the story of David Livingston, and we were at his little one-room apartment where he was raised with multiple siblings and his parents, one room. When I say one room, I mean that's the bedroom, and that's the living room, and that's the kitchen, and it was smaller than probably the average bedroom today. The whole family lived there, and I was thinking about David Livingston's story He lost his wife and several of his children in his effort to carry the gospel message to Africa. He was even brutally attacked by a lion, and he never fully recovered from that. Yet he marched on. Why? Because he heard this report from Robert Moffat, who became his father-in-law. He ended up marrying Robert Moffat's daughter. But he heard this report from Robert Moffat. Here's what Robert Moffat said. In the morning sun, I saw the smoke of a thousand villages where no missionary had ever gone before. And that captured David Livingston's imagination, and he went. So he was ready to endure suffering to bring the gospel to those peoples. What sustains men like these? What sustains them? What can sustain us as we witness to the gospel and face opposition by being ridiculed, disliked, and rumored about? That's about the worst we tend to face in California. We have a governor who shut down the state for a year and a half, and so we faced a bit more there. But we face a little bit of persecution, ridicule, and suffering, and we're ready to head for the nearest red state to avoid it. And my question is, What sustains us as we witness the gospel and face opposition? The ridicule, persecution, opposition often came from others in the church. Did you know that? As we uphold the truth of Scripture against the foolish and ignorant false doctrines that fly about. Those doctrines people love to hear, their itching ears want to hear. So the opposition isn't just from the world out there, it's often from the church in here. 
The ridicule and opposition and persecution can come from the world as we proclaim the gospel message of their salvation in no other name but the name of Jesus Christ. Go out and tell your friends, neighbors, family members, and coworkers that if they don't trust in Christ, they're going to hell and see how popular you become. Like launch that one across the bow at Christmas dinner this year. Glad you're all here for the first advent of Christ. Before we have some turkey, I just want to tell you, because you sin and rebel against God, you are going to die in your sins and be punished by God forever in eternal hell. Unless you believe in the name of Jesus Christ, who will save you and your immortal soul. Glad you're here. Anybody want to have some turkey now? You all understand how that's going to come across. But make no mistake about it, that kind of suffering will inevitably come. For Satan is like a roaring lion lurking around, seeking whom he might devour, isn't he? So what sustains us in the face of that? By the way, while I'm not encouraging you with your family to say it so glibly, I am encouraging you not to keep your mouth closed about the fact that people you claim to love are sitting around there in their sin about to go to hell and think you're somehow virtuous by not offending them. I love you so much that I won't offend you. I'll just let you go to hell. Don't be glib about it, but tell them the truth. Kindly, graciously, patiently, tell them the truth. You might not be liked at the end of that day. And what sustains you in the face of it? What sustains you in the face of that? Well, let me take it a step further. Jesus actually calls it a blessing to be opposed like this. Listen to what he says. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. I mean, how many of you guys go, I just heard these people are gossiping about me and saying all kinds of untrue things. What a blessing. Nobody does that that I know. Blessed are you when they do that on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward, your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. How can suffering for the name of Christ be a blessing? Friends, the answer for Paul is simple, and it's in this beautiful digression that we call the gospel. This beautiful digression is what encourages Paul, and it's the basis upon which Paul encourages Timothy. So I want to consider that digression in two parts. First, the power of the gospel he proclaims. The power of the gospel he proclaims. We're going to look at that in verses 9 through 11. And second, the power of the God of that gospel. We're going to look at that in verses 8 and 12. So 9 through 11, the power of the gospel he proclaims, and 8 and 12, the power of the God of the gospel. So let's look first at the power of the gospel that Paul proclaims. Before I turn to 2 Timothy 1.8, we're told by Paul in Romans 1.16 this. You guys are familiar with this. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. The Jew first and also the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. For as it is written, the just shall live by faith. In other words, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. I need salvation because the wrath of God is upon me for my sin. I don't have the righteousness I need to stand before God. But in the gospel, I receive the righteousness of God in Christ through faith. A foreign righteousness, not my own. So I'm not ashamed of the gospel because the gospel is the power of God for salvation. In the gospel, we receive a righteousness, not our own, through faith in Christ. That's good news. And Paul's unashamed of that message. Now this command, I'm not ashamed, 
So Timothy, do not be ashamed. Look there at 2 Timothy 1.8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony. That's the gospel, the message. Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. In other words, the message about Jesus Christ, his person and his work. Nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. See, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Timothy, you don't be ashamed of the gospel. Now, this is what you call a litotes. And you say, what is that? We use litotes all the time in English. It's, it's an ironic way of saying things. You say, what do you mean? You know how this is. So if my wife comes out and says, how do I look? And I say, not bad. You know I'm saying ironically, you look really good. Right? That's what Paul's saying. Do not be ashamed of the gospel. In other words, he says, I'm proud of the gospel. You should be proud of the gospel. Be proud of it. That's what he's getting at. Be proud of the gospel, Timothy, and be proud of its minister. That's what he's telling him. Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. And what Paul's saying is, I'm proud of the gospel, so you need to be proud of the gospel. And you need to be proud of me, the preacher of the gospel. That's what Paul's saying to Timothy. And the basis for their pride in the gospel is that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. The basis for his pride in Paul is that Paul preaches the gospel truthfully. Now let's consider how Paul describes the power of God in the gospel. I want to really consider that the power of God in the gospel really in four parts briefly. First, the gospel is the power of God because of its nature. The gospel is the power of God because of its nature. Look at the very end of verse 8, where he says, For the gospel, by the power of God. Now notice the first phrase, who saved us. He saved us. Now, who's the reference for who? The reference for who is God. God saved us. Share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us. This is his work. Salvation is God's work. You're proud of the gospel because it's God's work. That's its nature. And when I say nature, we're talking about the birth of something. It comes from God. That's why Paul can explode in doxology in Ephesians 1, 3, and 4. So what he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who blessed us in him, in Christ, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. God saved us. He rescued us from the greatest evils of Satan, sin, and death, from the judgment due to us for our sin, and he gave us the greatest blessing we can ever know. He gave us Christ. God did this, and that truth encourages the gospel minister to suffer. For to paraphrase Calvin, the salvation we have from God more than compensates for all the evils we will have to suffer in this world. And this salvation is his work. It is from him and through him and to him. To God be the glory forever. Second, the gospel is the power of God because of its purpose. So because of its nature, it's the power of God. It's the power of God because of its purpose. What is God's intended end in the gospel? Look at verse 9 again. He saved us, it's his work, it's from him, and called us to what? So he's the one who did that, so it's also his work, 
and called us to a holy calling. That is the end of the purpose. He called us to a holy calling. Now this speaks both to our holy status and to our holy living. So keep your hand here and look over at Ephesians 1. I want to show you this, both our holy status and our holy living. Ephesians 1, and look at verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, in other words, God made him an apostle, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Now let me stop there for a second. Hagios in the Greek, to the holy ones. Now who's he talking to? The whole church in Ephesus. And he calls them the holy ones. He isn't speaking to a specific group of people whom the papacy later declared sainthood by canonizing them. He's speaking to the whole church, to the saints, to the holy ones who are in Ephesus. In other words, their status is that they're holy. They are the holy ones. I can refer to you, Sovereign Grace, as the holy ones. Now, how could that be? Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be what? Holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. See, I want you to hear this. How are you holy? Because Christ is our righteousness and holiness. We are chosen in Christ to be holy and blameless. It is not because in and of yourself you're holy and blameless. If I said to you, because you exercise faith, you in and of yourself are holy and blameless, that would be a sham. But if I said to you, the Spirit unites you to Christ through faith, and he is your righteousness, your holiness. Therefore, you are now holy in him. That's when we're getting to the gospel message. If we have him through faith and by the work of the Holy Spirit, then we are God's holy ones, his saints, those who are holy and blameless, those who are adopted as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. That's why Paul can refer to the church, if, for example, at Hebrews and call them holy brothers. Not because we're holy in and of ourselves, but because Christ is ours by faith. And he is holy. Thus, by being united to him, we are holy. And friends, this holy status that we have in Christ is being worked out in our day-to-day -day lives. That's why I said it's not just a holy status, but a holy living that we've been called to. For if anyone is in Christ, behold, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. God did not save you and leave you to wallow in worldliness. We did not receive some kind of weak grace that encourages or permits license to sin. We did not receive some kind of grace that removes the penalty of sin so that we're forgiven, but leaves us enslaved to the power of sin. That's not what we received. We received Christ and all his blessings through faith. We received, as the reformers called it, the duplex gratia in him. In other words, the double grace 
The double grace, what is that? Justification, the forgiveness of sins and declaration of righteousness, a legal status. And sanctification, the growth in holiness. And thus we've been graciously saved to a new kind of holy living. Look at Ephesians 2 and verse 8. You'll see this end there. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of work so that no one may boast. So how are you saved? By grace through faith. Did you do anything? Nothing. Is that clear? Nothing. You received that. You received him. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. In other words, he's talking about the new creation. Creating Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That is all the good news. The good news is not that you receive forgiveness of your sins, but you're left to wallow in slavery to sin. The good news is you received Christ. And because you received him, you received everything that is his, both the status of a holy one and the spirit of God who works out holiness in your life. The glorious reality is that Christ is ours. And thus we're declared holy and that holiness is being powerfully worked out in us. That's why Paul can give the commands he'll go on to give in Ephesians 4 through 6. Look at Ephesians 4, just briefly. Ephesians 4 and verse 1. Here comes the therefore. For three chapters, he gives them no commands. You know that? There are no imperatives in Ephesians 1 through 3. Well, there's technically one imperative in Ephesians 2.11. In other words, for, verbs in the form of a command. There's technically one in Ephesians 2.11, which is, remember you Gentiles in the flesh, remember at one time you were. That's not really a command to do anything, except remember what you once were. Okay? So there are no commands to do anything until Ephesians 4. Chapters 1 through 3 is, here's what God did for you, here's what God did for you, here's what God did for you now. In light of what God has done for you in Christ, therefore, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, here he is again in prison, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. See, we're a new creation, a new man, and we're to walk that way. We're being transformed to Christ's image from one degree of glory to another by the Holy Spirit, and that all redounds to the glory of Christ. And this encourages the gospel minister. Look down at Ephesians 4.24 just briefly. You're to put off the old man, which I think is actually not just speaking about the old nature. Some translations say sinful nature. I don't like that. I actually think the old man is a reference to the old Adamic creation that you were once a part of, if you will. Put off the old man and put on the new man, the new man being Christ, the new creation in Christ. Put on the new man, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. See, we're being transformed into Christ's image in true righteousness and holiness. We were created originally in true righteousness and holiness. We fell from that in sin, and now Christ has come as the second Adam. He is truly holy and righteous, and by being united to him, you are righteous and holy by declaration, and now you're to work that out in your life. And this encourages the gospel minister to suffer willingly, for he is being counted worthy the gospel minister is being counted worthy to be like Christ. To follow his Savior to death. To suffer for his name. Third, so the gospel is the power of God because of its nature. It comes from God. The gospel is the power of God because of its appointed end, our holiness. The gospel is the power of God because of its judicial ground. Look at 2 Timothy again. 2 Timothy 1.9. 
2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 9. When I say it's judicial ground, look there. Who saved us, God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Now notice first the not. Not because of our works. Because is a causation word. You understand that? Because. It wasn't caused by our works. I hear this all the time. I want to correct people. Well, I said those really inappropriate things because I drink alcohol. No, you know that one of the things on the alcohol bottle, it's not labeled there, ingredients. Some of them, the ingredients don't include cuss words and inappropriate statements to your friends. You understand that? You're not drinking those down. You understand what's happening there? So when you consume too much alcohol, it frees up, if you will, the wickedness of your heart to pour out of your mouth. You didn't say those things because of the booze. Those things were in there, and the booze, if you will, let them out. Because is causation language. I was rude to my wife because she did this. No, my wife is not the cause of my rudeness. She may have done that. That may have been the opportunity I took to be rude, but I was the cause of my rudeness. You understand how that goes? We love to victimize ourselves this way and make it like, it's other person did this. I just had to respond that way. No, you didn't. That comes out of your heart. Okay? Causation language. Why are you saved? Why are you called to holiness? Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. I say judicial ground to emphasize the legal basis for our salvation. If you stand before a judge, he is supposed to render a verdict of guilty or not guilty based upon the ground of your deeds. Did you do the evil and illegal thing? If so, you're guilty. If you did not do the illegal and evil thing, then you're not guilty. And that's what's shocking here. That's what's shocking. God did not judicially ground your salvation in Christ upon your works, upon what you did. He judicially grounded the salvation received in Christ upon his eternal purpose and grace. Look at, again, look at 2 Timothy 1.9. Who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works. In other words, you're not being judged on the basis of your works. Did you hear that? You're being judged righteous on the basis of the works of someone else. He goes on to say, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. If your deeds in the body were weighed by God, you'd be found guilty. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all disobeyed. We've all rebelled against God's law. We've all walked in our own way. We've all listened to the foolish voice in our own heads. And thus we justly deserve death and eternal condemnation from our holy God. All of us. But he purposed to save us. He gave us grace. And that grace is not a substance he doles out. Like, here's a little grace for you and a little grace for you. You can't put it in water and make it holy water. You can't put it in oil and make it holy oil. It's not a substance he doles out. That grace is a person. The Lord Jesus Christ. You hear that in, in by the way, the pastoral epistles, when the grace of God appeared. When was that? When Christ came. He is the grace of God to us. And when were you and I given the grace of God in Christ? When were we given him? Was it after we believed? 
Was it after we cleaned up our mess? Was it after we did something good? Look at 2 Timothy 1.9 again. Who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. And when? Which he gave us in Christ Jesus. Now notice this. Before the ages began. So here's the technical proper Greek translation of that. Before the ages began is a way we're just making a saying out of it. But here's what it is. Before times eternal. Before times eternal. And which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus. Think about this. When were you given grace in Christ Jesus? Before times eternal. What could you have possibly added to that? What were you doing before times eternal? Nothing, because you were not. You were not. That's why it's his own purpose and grace, not your works. He gave us grace in Christ before time eternal. Yet that grace was not manifested in history until the incarnation of Jesus Christ. That's why it says, but now has been manifested. But Christ was always the grace of God to his people. Every Old Testament saint was saved by the grace of God in Christ. They had Christ by faith as he was revealed and given in the covenants, types, and shadows in the Old Testament. But Christ appeared in history for the first time in his incarnation. However, though that's the first time he appears in history, that's not when he starts being our Savior. He was given that office before the foundation of the world. Even as God chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless. Saints, do you hear the good news? How could it be your work if it was given to you before times eternal? And this encourages the gospel minister to suffer with Christ. For he knows Christ is not given to him based upon his own performance. Christ is his before times eternal. Fourth, the gospel is the power of God because of its effect. Because of its effect. The effect of it. Look at verse 10. Who abolished, and which has now been through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus. Now notice this. Of Christ Jesus, here's the statement. Who, that's the reference, Christ Jesus. Who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Now that phrase, life and immortality, is a hendiadis. In other words, it's a, grammatically functioned as, it's, another way you'd say it is, you could just translate it, immortal life. He gave us immortal life. It's two ways of saying something that you're really bringing together with a, a conjunction there. But he gave us immortal life. He brought immortal life to light through the gospel. Now, I want you to think about what God's eternal purpose and grace in Christ does. God's eternal purpose and grace abolishes death, our enemy, and gives light to immortal life. The gospel of our Savior, Jesus Christ, abolishes the enemy of death and gives light to immortal life. When we say gives light to something, we mean it reveals it. It reveals it. So what do we mean by that? What Paul means is that Christ's resurrection, the resurrection of Christ reveals to you that death no longer has any sting. 
The grave has no victory over us. We may face the grave, but even then it has no ultimate power. You know, unless Christ comes back, we're all going to face the grave. Every one of us. It's just a matter of time. But even when you face it, it has no ultimate power if you're in Christ. For though we die, yet we live. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And one day at the return of Christ, our mortal bodies will be raised and take on immortality. Now, I want you to understand this because I think people miss this often. Our eternal life begins the moment we believe. So heaven, and I think we have to be really clear about this, especially because we don't like to think about death, but you're going to face it. And you need to understand that when death approaches, heaven is not the beginning of your eternal life. Heaven is the progression of your eternal life. You've gone from a state where there's sorrow, sin, suffering, and death to a state where there is no sorrow, sin, suffering, and death. Just life immortal in the blessed presence of God. And it all consummates fully in the final resurrection of Christ's return. So even now, death is a defeated foe. Yes, you still face that enemy. But you face this enemy of the grave in Christ. You face it in the one who conquered it. And death could not hold him down, and death will not hold you down. Sovereign grace, when you close your eyes in death, your life does not end. It progresses to an even better reality than you know now. And this truth empowers mission and willingness to suffer. All the enemies we face are defeated foes. So we face them with no ultimate fear of them. I will exalt the name of Christ, and he can guard my name. See, folks can disparage my name with no ultimate harm to me. And Paul is saying that this is the gospel of which he was appointed an apostle, a herald, and a teacher. And that's why he's suffering. And that message is so glorious that he's proud to suffer for it. And that leads to the second part, which is really brief. Second part, the power of the God of the gospel. The power of the God of the gospel. Remember in verse 8, we talked about the power of God. Now look at verse 12 because it brackets this. Which is why I suffer as I do. Notice what he says. But I am not ashamed that being ashamed brackets this passage as well. I'm not ashamed for I know, listen, I know whom I have believed. And I'm convinced he's able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Paul's not ashamed. He's not ashamed because of the gospel and because of the God of the gospel. See, I'm not ashamed because I know whom I've believed. And I'm convinced he's able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Bad translation in the ESV, by the way, here. It's actually what I've entrusted to him. Big difference, isn't it? The Greek is, he's able to guard until that day what I've entrusted to him. Paul's saying that he trusts in the Lord and he knows the Lord is able to guard until that day what Paul has entrusted to him. What's Paul entrusted to God? 
Now, by the way, the King James, the New King James, the NASB, they all get this translation right. The New English translation, I'm going to go through the list. But go to 2 Timothy chapter 4. What has Paul entrusted to God? 2 Timothy chapter 4, and look at verse 17. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. See, Paul trusted, entrusted to God his own life and ministry. He entrusted God his own life and ministry. That's why Paul can be proud as he's imprisoned, persecuted, and facing death. Because he knows whom he has believed. He knows God will guard him. He's entrusted himself and his ministry to a powerful God. God is the God who lives, who is all-powerful. The God who will fulfill all his holy will. The God who will fulfill his purpose and grace in Paul's life and Paul's ministry. God has promised. God is at work in Paul. God cannot fail. He will not let anyone or anything snatch Paul from his hand. He has him until the end. This is indeed good news for us as believers and as a church on mission. Sovereign Grace, does that not in some way encourage you to face ridicule for sharing Christ with others? You know the one to whom you've entrusted yourself. He has you. He's done all this for you before you were even born. This Christmas season gives you a chance to speak of Christ to your family and friends and neighbors and coworkers, doesn't it? Yeah, they may ridicule you, but Christ is yours and God has you. Entrust yourself to him. Entrust yourself to the one who judges justly. Entrust yourself to the one who will keep you to the end. Entrust yourself to the one who makes promises and is faithful to keep them all. We are convinced that God is able to guard until that great day what we have entrusted to him. Our lives, our bodies and souls, our reputations, our energies and efforts, all our gifts and graces, they're all his and he will guard you. He will guard you. Let me make one more simple application. We have missionaries who have joyfully run to the front of the battle for the sake of preaching the gospel. We have the opportunity to encourage them with our gifts in the Christmas missionary offering. Let us show how proud we are of these gospel ministers and that we stand with them. Further, Jordan Fitch has the opportunity to minister the gospel in empty pulpits in Scotland this summer and to be mentored by Ian Hamilton as he trains to be a gospel minister. Let us show that we're proud of this young gospel minister and support his training and work. Do you, see, do you see what we're doing? We're proud of the message that we preach. And we're proud of the ministers we send out to preach it. And we come alongside. And we engage in that work. Sovereign Grace, this Christmas season, may God empower us to be proud of the gospel. Proud of it. May our friends and family members and co-workers and neighbors know we are proud of the gospel. We don't want to put it under a bushel. We don't want to hide it. We're proud of it. Look what God has done for us. And may we also be proud of the ministers 
of the gospel. Amen. Let me pray. Father, we ask that we would be a people who are not ashamed of the gospel nor of God's ministers of that gospel. May we be proud to proclaim it, to hold it up in front of people, to speak of the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. May we not be ashamed, but proud to always speak of Christ, to speak of you, Father, who blessed us with such grace before the foundation of the world. We are thankful that Christ has now been manifested in history, that we have seen him in his work, and that we trust in him, and that we look forward to his second coming. May we continue to do so. May you work in us in such a way that we long to have the privilege to be counted worthy to suffer for the name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.